just to begin, I want to say thank you to everyone who's been watching the recent episodes. Um, it's been a thrill to explore the video terrain, and I'm uh, I'm enjoying this. So thank you for uh, for keeping up and uh, for kind of keeping me company with uh, all that's happening. I'm getting a lot of feedback, and I appreciate it. And um, I honestly, I just released an episode, spent two days working on it, should be asleep, it's late at night, uh, and I can't just, I can't close my eyes and drift away. It's kind of like watching the end of a journey, but really watching the last sort of, maybe the last seconds of a journey. And I'll explain all this and what I'm what I'm getting at. I uh, when I started giving the tour some 15 years ago, when I was sort of putting it together and trying to figure out uh, what stories matter and what's more perhaps uh, what's more entertaining and how do you kind of wrap stops together through one narrative thread, I thought the easiest introduction to Lebanon's history for an, for a foreign audience and a Lebanese audience is the currency and the complications about the currency meaning what a managed float means and what an adjusted rate means and why the lira rate was 1500 lira to the dollar and how it kind of came about and I'll just step away from this for a moment and just sort of take my own memory back to the 1980s visiting uh, visiting Lebanon during the Civil War. And my grandmother in Tripoli would usually just give me one of these bad boys here. And, you know, I'd say on the tour that the 250 lira note sort of it's too big to keep in your wallet. I myself, I kept it in my in my tour duffel bag just to keep it safe, and I laminated it, of course, because I ran out of these. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a few people would run away with these, and I sort of, you know, keep my eye on them. But in the 1980s, the largest note, you could go and buy perhaps bon juice or pampa, pampa ananas, or, uh, you know, things that were fairly, uh, fairly affordable for kids, just sort of going to the supermarket. It could be uh, a chocolate bar not that much in terms of value but you, we were using these and this was the largest note and uh, of course growing up and then growing up in Beirut later then you have the the 500 lira note which was printed uh, fairly uh, odd color that sort of maroon brown sort of uh, not a very pleasant note but it was the largest note, and they shrank the size. Fortunately, you couldn't go bigger than this anymore physically, so the 500 lira note was smaller, at least thinner. And then, of course, you have the rapid inflation of the early 1990s, and this bad boy here, the old 1,000 lira note, first batch, of course, was printed in 1988. And, I mean, this is... This is my adolescence. This is my 20s. I mean, I, I, we all know this note. It's a very familiar note. And the reason I'm bringing these out is because on the tour, I would be showing these notes in, in addition to how it all started. 
the one lira note. I would take the uh, the guests back to 1975, early 1975, and I would explain that 2.2 of these would get you one dollar. The old exchange rate, 2.2 lira to the dollar. By the early 1990s, it hits 3,000 lira to the dollar. And I would explain basically why something this big, the largest note in Lebanon, within a few years, it would be equivalent to the smallest coin we use. The 250 lira note becomes the smallest coin, at least the smallest coin we used regularly. We did have the 100, we did have the 50, and there was a sort of flirtation with the 25, but they never took off. So we did have other other smaller coins, but the 250 is still the smallest coin we use. And my knowledge on finance, my knowledge on economics, and my knowledge on the central bank's current dilemma is is very limited. I'm only going to share things that I know from my own life, my own personal sort of my conversations, my my younger years growing up, and I'll explain that in a bit. But I am not supporting anyone here. I am not standing up for anyone. I'm just going to explain how I sort of see what's happening now. And more or less, kind of a reflection of the way I grew up. And uh, I grew up in a IMF household. My father worked for the IMF until the early 1990s when he was hired to become a vice governor for the central bank. And this, of course, is at a time where a lot of people are sort of being hired in the post-war in the Reconstruction era. This is under Rafiq Hariri and uh, Riyad Salemi, the current governor, was the governor back then. So we're going back 27, 28 years ago. I mean, this is almost three decades. And the lira was, it, I mean, it hit 3,000 lira to the dollar at least in 1992, if I'm not mistaken, 93. Early 1993, it sort of was going down. It hit. I remember 1,750 was sort of the the standard rate for a while, and then it kind of adjusted itself to 1,500, and that became a fixed rate. Um, my father spent four years in the central bank, and until 1997, the the stories were mostly economics. My, my father, I mean, I was younger, I was a teenager, but the heavy politics, the, the things that would come later, those came after we moved back to the States and he became an ambassador, uh, the ambassador of Lebanon to the U.S. But um, the reason I'm saying all these things is that those years, even in terms of finance, even when it comes to economics, um, it's 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 critical, and if it's not when it's not when it's not stated, the accusations are empty. They're they're irrelevant. It is always critical to remember that 
Lebanon did not emerge from the civil war as an independent country where you have technocrats that you can hold to account and easily just sort of point the finger at them directly and say they are the problem, replace them, fire them, at worst imprison them if they do something that's criminal. But Lebanon did not emerge in an era of accountability and transparency. It emerged under Syrian occupation. And the Syrians ran the show. They gave breathing space to Rafi Hariri. And that is true. They did tolerate. They tolerated some economic sovereignty under his rule. And, and I mean, there are big projects that he's... I mean, you can say anything you want about them. Solidaire is one big example of a Rafi Hariri-led post-war reconstruction idea that would have eventual... Uh, uh, consequences to the Lebanese economy, but that this is at a time where Lebanon's Lebanon's post-war environment is two things: it's Syrian uh, Syrian occupied. It is, I mean, it is so entrenched in Syrian intelligence, and it's just the Syrians ran the show. So even when there was some economic influence, it was under the supervision of the Syrians. And it's at a time where there was at least the idea of regional peace was on the horizon. It was on the horizon. It doesn't mean anything more than that. But there were there was a chance of a Palestinian-Israeli settlement that could potentially lead to wider Arab-Israeli peace. That was on the table. And, I mean, we know what happens. And we know that we know that there was a lot of corruption in those years, and we know, looking back, of course, now, we know two things, that a lot of the corruption that shouldn't have been there was there, and also the Syrians were very aggressive in their, in their, in their, in their management of Lebanon, meaning they had no tolerance to letting go of, of Lebanon. Spelled out in the Ta'if Accord, all that stuff. The Syrian army should leave, all that stuff. Intelligence should leave, all that stuff. It never happened. Um, cosmetics happened. Some Syrian soldiers moved from Beirut to the to the border with Syria, but nothing, nothing, nothing of substance. And uh, to the point that Rafi Hariri became very, very uh, opposed to Syrian influence. And then, of course, uh, he's killed in two thousand five. The reason I'm saying all this is that those 15 years, criticize Hariri all you want. Uh, don't put this man on a pedestal. He is just like any other politician, period. You should treat him as such. He's not godlike. He is not anything more. When he wanted something done, he could use his influence and he could get things done to a point. And, but he's not sort of... He's... He should be treated as anyone else. And I'm saying this because those mistakes made under his rule that could have been avoided, I mean, you should say it openly. And I am sort of ha I'm comfortable at, at criticizing bad ideas, including, and I think it should be said, that certain things that he did, I think, are, are grave errors. I don't think uh, you can have a parallel state. I don't think you can have a parallel reconstruction concept. Uh, I don't think you can have a parallel diplomatic channel. And I'm saying this because we know what that was like. That never properly put the Syrians under any pressure. What it did instead 
is it created a separate channel that the Syrians would always monitor. And uh, I mean, I think the risks that should have been taken in 2005, uh, the risks that were taken in 2005 should have been taken in the early 1990s because the tolerance towards Syrian rule, I think, is what allowed those kinds of other ideas to emerge. Separate channels, separate influences, separate persuasions, competing against the Syrians. It didn't sort of, it didn't allow the Lebanese state to properly rebuild and coalesce around, around one authority. And I say that knowing, knowing that the Syrians would have attacked that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, paradigm they would have they would have challenged it they would have probably eliminated it but that's where the pressure should have been on the syrians not on an alternate arrangement because the alternate arrangement is i think even if it was an, a decent initiative it was a decent idea at challenging the syrians it became toxic it became toxic to most lebanese and whatever is left of that alternate universe, the people that emerged in those years as critics, as champions of independence and all of that, as people that should have been more accountable and less corrupt and all that, uh, they became, or at least most people, pointed the finger at them as well and said, you're part of the problem, get out. And that's the October... I mean, that's, that's just six months ago. That's the protests that we see continuing on the streets. So I think any criticism of the Hariri years, the Rafi Hariri, you need to say, at least in the same breath, you have to say the Syrians were in charge. And if you're going to blame Hariri, you have to blame the Syrians. You can't, can't sort of take Hariri out and say... It's your fault, 100% Syrians are just monitoring security. Hadidi was the problem. That's not the case. It's clearly not the case. That is what's happening now. I think that any criticism of the current governor, the existential governor of the central bank, Riyad Sademe, if you're going to criticize him, you should. If you think he's made mistakes, you should say that openly without fear. But it would be reckless, reckless to assert that this man is responsible for the rapid devaluation and collapse of the lira. Yes, he is the governor of the central bank. That is true. He's also the governor of the central bank under two forms of occupation. The Syrian occupation that lasted 15 years until 2005 and the current one. The current one under Hezbollah. The current one with Iran's blessing. The current one that keeps Lebanon from functioning. Period. It is reckless. It is reckless to simply shield that group from criticism. Or equally reckless, I believe, and I say this knowing that friends and people I've interviewed on the podcast would disagree. It is reckless also to just leave them to a regional solution. Betting on one day that that group will be convinced or that the Iranians will be persuaded to change their behavior. The reason I say that's equally reckless is because it it destroys all the decent attempts that are happening in Lebanon. I mean, you can't just keep you can't expect the population to keep trying and trying and trying. It doesn't work. 
it's 30 years since the civil war ended and you have a new generation that's as fed up as the civil war year generation as the ones before as the ones before and it is entering such a such a horrible state of affairs and 4000 lira will get used to the idea i mean it'll hit 5 or maybe even 6 it may go even worse we'll we'll adjust ourselves to this horrible situation and then you can't sort of can't keep going back to the street and trying over and over people will give up at some point the fact that they haven't given up is the hope that is the that is the light at the end of the tunnel enough people are still trying but you cannot just point the finger at Riyad Saleme betting that if he resigns or if he's fired that the person that replaces him will suddenly you know be able to fix uh, fix Lebanon fix the currency it doesn't work that way there is a huge problem in the country and if that problem is not if it's not uttered in the same breath um, I think it's a lost cause all that is a introduction to a blog post that my father wrote uh, this goes back to December of 2012 it dances around the issue and I'm going to share the parts that link to exactly what's happening at the moment and I think it, it just sort of it offers that kind of reflection on uh, on the reason why a post-Civil War Lebanon, if it's going to be given its due chance, its real chance, uh, a proxy militia with so much authority, if you want to entertain sovereignty or attempted sovereignty with a proxy state, you're doomed. And uh, the post is called Deja Vu. As soon as he assumed office as prime minister almost exactly 20 years ago, Rafiq Hariri was made to understand the rules of the game in Lebanon. The Hafiz Asad rules, that is. And the first and foremost rule was that no one can question Syrian authority in Lebanon. Also, that the Lebanese government and people had no business interfering in such issues as Lebanon's national security, matters relating to Lebanon's own army, including its geographical deployment and officer promotions, Lebanon's policy on the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian militias in Lebanon, as well as other security and foreign policy matters that really mattered. Hariri tried to play by rules set by the Syrians and focused on reconstruction, public investment, and economic revival, which after all had been his primary agenda to begin with. For several years, he navigated the narrow bounds permitted by the Syrians very carefully. He pushed his economic vision for Lebanon in every way possible. And there were some achievements, but far, far short of what would have been possible. Deep down, Hadidi became increasingly convinced that his dream of a vibrant, prosperous, and secure Lebanon can never be reached under the heavy-handed control and abuse by Syrian intelligence and its local affiliates. And as long as Lebanon continued to be used by the Syrian regime as a convenient theater to leverage its regional ambitions and agendas. After Israel's withdrawal from South Lebanon in the spring of 2000, and Bashar Assad's insistence on keeping the liberated South as a perpetual battlefield, Hadidi became totally convinced that Lebanon had no future unless the heavy-handed grip of the Assad regime was loosened. He rebelled against the rules set by Damascus and began to join forces with other Lebanese groups, uh, 
who were also unhappy with the status quo until his assassination in February 2005. What Nasrallah fails to recognize is that Hezbollah's independent military status and its hegemony over the country are major reasons for Lebanon's vulnerability, the erosion of state authority, the lack of productive investments and quality jobs, and the faltering economy. I am afraid Nasrallah will continue to hear March 14's broken record for as long as it takes to set things straight. The only conversation I had with the uh, governor of the central bank was when he came to pay his condolences after my father's assassination. And uh, I had a two-minute conversation with him only. And sort of, I didn't know what to tell this man. I, mean, I, I only knew him as the governor of the central bank. Didn't know him in any other way. And uh, I told him, I literally said to him, I think Lebanese are, they're nostalgic for their old currency. Not just the old notes themselves, but the fact that, you know, this was a time where Lebanese were proud of their, of their currency. And these beautiful old notes were, you know, nothing controversial about putting Jaita or Baalbak or Anjar or anything and these monopoly like notes that were printed after the war ended are there there's there's they're hideous and i told him i suggested to him just bring back the old notes and update the update the figure if you need to or better yet slash off three zeros altogether just make it 1.5 1.5 lira to the dollar he looked at me like i was crazy he's like you know do you even know what you're talking about and i told him i i don't actually i don't but i uh I just have this nostalgia for a time where Lebanon worked. And first and foremost, it's currency. It functioned. It was worth something. And that's not too long ago. So at least, uh, you know, I mean, he, he let me talk. And then I left before I could embarrass myself further. But I'm saying all this in sort of an, a lighthearted way to to make the point that, I mean... There is a group that has hijacked Lebanon, and they're operating the way the Syrians operated. And they should not be given a pass. And an open discussion about their role in Lebanon, if it's not shared, if it's not, if it's not, if it's not in every other topic when it comes to rebuilding and, and, and holding people to account and all that, if justice is being discussed and that group's abilities are ignored, I, I think Lebanon is doomed. And I, I'm i going to be the broken record. I mean, it's, um, it's the only way out. Thank you.